0: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. It is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino.
1: Did you miss us? Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. It's Wednesday, the pot of tea is on the go and we're going to take a timely deep dive into the decade that we call the naughties Back with some nostalgia, lockdown's just been announced, let's do the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast, episode 23. It's been 78 years since Terry Venables was born, happy birthday El Tel, table never lies, we're going to look at Das Bundesliga. But first, we're going to look at some of the best January transfers from around Europe and mainly the Premier League. It's time to don our yellow ties, it's time to dust Jim White down and drag him out of the closet and spark some wild flagrant rumours and we've got to fill some dead void of TV time on deadline day. Yes, it is the January transfer window and in these Covid times, we're probably going to have to scour for some bargains or some loans that are going to be turned permanent. It's set to be one of the worst windows on record for spending money, which is how I like it. I think I've soured in my old age towards transfer windows and the incessant rumor mills on social media and on Sky Sports News. There's far far too many ITKs are in the nose on Twitter. So here's my definitive list of people you should listen to on transfer window season or transfer rumor mill season. David Ornstein or any of the athletic team and Fabrizio Romano, that's it. That's my list. Um, Sky Sports news now, I think, are too sensationalistic and too tabloidy and just latch onto any rumour or just flat out make them up. Anyway, let's move away from the negativity today. We're going to look at the best January transfers and thanks to Podfather Mags and Harry Holland for selecting, between yourselves, my top three in a, spoiler, in a future video. So, we've got Nemanja Vidic, Patrice Everett and Virgil van Dijk. So, of course, Nemanja Vidić and Patrice Evra both won five Premier League titles, as Champions League and much, much more at Old Trafford in the uh, sort of the third or fourth regeneration of Sir Alex Ferguson's team at Manchester United. Whilst Virgil van Dijk, along with uh, the signing of Allison a few months later, changed Liverpool from top four nearly men under Klopp and into Premier League and Champions League winners in the past two years. So let's start with the two Man United lads. So they both began in quite inauspicious circumstances. Playing in the Manchester derby, both flopping quite hard. I remember reading a newspaper player ratings of the game and I think they got 3 out of 10 between them, so 3 out of 20. Um, hardly the greatest game for them to start, but getting into the 2006-07 season, Everest started to overhaul Gabriel Heinze at left-back when he was sort of wanting to go to Liverpool. Man United wouldn't let that happen. He went to Real Madrid and then Patrice Evra then became... Manchester United's left back from between 2007, the, the prime left back, until 2014 when he left under uh, David Moyes and obviously Patrice Evra as the story of how he was kicked out of the club. Quite um, like trash, really. Um, Nemanja Vidic had a easier time leaving the club but left at the same time and around the same time they lost, Manchester United lost Rio Ferdinand as well. So three of their main players in defence were just gone in 2014. And Vidic would become Rio Ferdinand's defensive partner and would partner um, the likes of Johnny Evans as well in Rio Ferdinand's injuries throughout the 2008-09 season when United were battling on seven fronts for uh, trophies. The good old days for uh, Manchester United. And going across to the Mersey, Virgil van Dijk, obviously, this is still in progress, but he's um, easily the best centre-back in world football, definitely in the conversation anyway. I mean, people didn't like his, probably the £75 million tag that came with him, but I think that that blows less now with the likes of Harry Maguire going for £80 million and not performing to Virgil van Dijk's level. Van Dijk got a Premier League in 2020, followed obviously that Champions League win in Madrid over Tottenham. He's currently out with an injury and at his age as it is now, if he comes back, even if he doesn't come back, he's still up there in the conversation for one of the best January transfers because he single-handedly almost alongside Alisson, quite literally with his hands changed, Liverpool, you know, into the team that they used to be in the 80s, defensively stringent and attacking going forward fantastically. So Liverpool's glory days are back. Manchester United's glory days want to be back. So... Four Manx, one toffee podcast, they first suggested Alexis Sanchez, so right out of the uh, the banter era for Manchester United. Alex, Alexis Sanchez used to be, or perhaps still is, a world-class player, not really hit the ground running it into yet, definitely didn't at Manchester United. I'd say he had one and a half good games for Man United in his time. Perhaps too harsh, but he played well when 2-0 down in the Manchester derby back in 2018, and then... Scored a goal in the FA Cup semi-final against Spurs. And that was it. I think he scored about four goals for United in his time before being shipped off to Inter Milan last summer. So from that ingest, jest, for one one also suggests Bruno Fernandes and Henrik Larsen. Henrik Larsen, of course, um, played a big part in Manchester United returning to the summit of the Premier League in 2007. It was one of those great deals. It was only a three-month loan deal when he, um, his Helsingborg team were in a postseason season in December to match. So Larson, he could still cut it. He proved that in the 2006 Champions League final when he came on for Barcelona against Arsenal, provided two assists, killed their dream of the Champions League. And Larson, he came up with a couple of goals and then made his final appearance in, I think it was a Champions League last 16 second leg or first leg, either way, provided some good goals. He sort of bridged that gap between Ruud van Nistelrooy leaving in 2006 and Tevez coming in 2007 with um, Rooney's usual strike partner, Luis Haar, out injured and for the other suggestion Bruno Fernandes obviously it's early days yet he's only been there at United for less than a year but he's putting up numbers in comparison to Frank Lampard in Frank Lampard's best season goal scoring season anyway obviously a lot of them are from penalties which rival fans will gripe at but it's not just his penalties it's his link up playing how he always looks forward and passes forward that He's given United a lot more impetus. I mean, look at Anthony Martial's record numbers last season. Those were got from Bruno Fernandes as more attacking play when United were sort of lacking something in midfield. You could say they still are, but attacking play, number 10, United were crying out for it. They got it. And if he continues as is, he's definitely to be named in the conversation for best January transfer sign ever. We put Virgil van Dijk in there. I think he signed in January 2018, so two years before... So, and especially if Manchester United win the Premier League, but as a United fan, I'm not getting my hopes up just yet. Podfather Mags writes in with Luis Suarez continuing on the Liverpool theme and also Felipe Coutinho. So Luis Suarez, obviously, a pivotal in putting Liverpool back into the title picture, scoring all them goals in the 2013-14 season, obviously. Bit a few people and then left uh, for Barcelona. And they were right on the edge of it. Brendan Rodgers seemed to have a knack of signing some... um, Great players in January. You can also add Daniel Sturridge. The markup on Felipe Coutinho, I think he signed for about £12 sold him on a couple of years later for £143 to Barcelona. Daniel Sturridge also, those three alongside Raheem Sterling, played a magnificent part in that season where Liverpool looked to be ending their 24 years of hurt until it slipped in the last second against Chelsea. But... That's by the bye. Also other suggestions for Podfather Mags, Tarkovsky for his beloved Burnley and got to say, superb signing and his partnership with Ben Mee is probably one of the best outside the Big Six at the minute. And Burnley are always defensively solid and that is part to James Tarkovsky and Ben Mee. Also Michael Key moved to Burnley in that January in a January transfer window but has since moved on to Everton. Pop Favre also suggests Riyad Mahrez for Leicester, who was signed from La Havre, I think. Um, they, he was signed when Leicester were pushing for the Premier League when they were in the Championship, and they would go up and Mahrez would have one of the best seasons on record for a winger in the 2015-16 season. Obviously, that fabled 5,000-1 um, to 1 Premier League winners. And other Premier League winners that he also suggests are Nemanja Matic and Branislav Ivanovic for Chelsea, two Serbians coming to Chelsea. Arguably... Chelsea shouldn't have sold Nemanja Matic in the first place, but they got him back. They got him back and he was their kingpin in sort of defensive midfield before the days of N'Golo Kante, who would also come, but in the summer. So he's disqualified. For the Love of Lists podcast, if you would not checked them out, I was appearing in one of their episodes, the greatest 11 of all time, and I came second, unfortunately. But they suggest Thomas Suchek from West to West Ham, which... Said in jest, but I think he will command an insane transfer fee when he does move on. At the moment, speaking on January the 5th, 2021, he's one of the most underrated players in the division at the minute. Probably the best box-to-box midfielder on current form. Scores goals, he always pops up in set-piece situations. Popped up with a winner at Everton in West Ham's last game and anyone who doesn't have him in his... Fantasy Premier League team are doing themselves a disservice. 5 million, scores goals all the time. And it's why I'm 17th in the what football FPL league. Anyway, Register TV looks to the continent and let's look to the continent for a second. He suggests Erling Highland for Dortmund. And like Bruno Fernandes, perhaps too early to mention him yet, but his goal scoring is just phenomenal. He's an absolute demon when it comes to finishing that goal against PSG, the sound that the net made. I think they do have a lot more microphones at the Westfalen Stadium or in any Bundesliga football as a whole really, put microphones around the net makes the goal sound amazing. Perhaps that's why I like Bundesliga more than any other league really. And he looks to be rumoured to be going. It looks only a matter of time before he leaves Dortmund for a bigger club, even though Dortmund are huge. Dortmund always are in this um, position where they Buy low and sell high. So Jadon Sancho, another big name to be rumored, and obviously Gio Reyna and Jude Bellingham for the future. And they'll just keep buying players, buying players for as little money as possible, and sign them on massively, and continue that um, financial rejuvenation from the early 2010s. So let's look. Let's stay in the Bundesliga, shall we, for some of my suggestions. Kevin De Bruyne to Wolfsburg for 17 million. And for the player that he is, seventeen million is an absolute bargain, as we now know today. Binned off by Chelsea, wasn't wanted under Jose Mourinho, but came back to the Premier League in what I to be admittedly I thought forty odd million for Man City at the time. That's ridiculous money, but obviously he's now one of the best players in the world. So seventeen million for Wolfsburg got them up the Bundesliga table, vying for Europe and potentially a Bundesliga title, but obviously wasn't to be. De Bruyne, seventeen million. That's all that needs to be said, really. But and an a more eye-watering feat. Let's go to Seria and Christian Vieri sticking in the two thousand. Christian Vieira Lazio to Inter Milan forty million euros, and it's for its time, which was two thousand. That's a ridiculous amount of money. But he almost notched a goal a game. And to be honest, who hasn't Vieri played for a world class, obviously centre forward? La Liga has. Um, all of these are in the 2000s, So, sticking with the theme of players that signed for a smaller club and then moved on. So, we've got Danny Alves and Ivan Rakitic to Sevilla. Danny Alves signed in two thousand three on a loan from Bahia. Bahia, some Brazilian or Portuguese-speaking listener, please come to me on that one. I've probably ruined that pronunciation of that. So, five hundred thousand euros. Danny Alves came to Spain and you know the rest is history signed for Barcelona a few years later and probably I'll stick my neck out and say the best right back outside of Cafu ever in football and Ivan Rakitic one of the best central midfielders of his generation signed for 2.5 million euros from Schalke in 2011 which that's an insane insanely low fee Um, obviously Rakitic would move on to Barcelona win the treble etc etc And he's come back to Sevilla last summer, jumping out of the Barcelona sinking ship. Another little bargain for a La Liga club came from Fluminense in January 2007. It was a transfer that annoyed me at the time because Marcelo joined from Fluminense to Real Madrid for 6 million euro. He was a football manager god at the time and I always signed him 5 million. You could get him and he was the best player on the game for a good 10 years. One of the best left backs ever obviously you've got like Roberto Carlos and Paolo Maldini at the time in there before him, but he's gone on. He's, he's not um, playing as well as he used to now, obviously because he's in his thirties, but he's of his time. He was one of the best fullbacks in world football and that's not hyperbole. Anyway, register TV also suggests Papi Sisa for his pure impact scoring 13 goals in 14 games where Newcastle, got 5th place ahead of Chelsea but wouldn't snatch that last Champions League place and scored a goal of the season. Who can forget that swerving half-volley by the touchline against Chelsea? Fantastic. And Juan Román Riquelme, who returned to Boca Juniors in 2008, obviously prior to that, he won everything there is to win in South American football and Argentine football as Boca won the successive Copa Libertadores at the start of the millennium. Maracas Flute suggests Christophe Dugre to Birmingham, transformative and kept them up in their first season back in the Premier League. And for me, I will agree, Christophe Dugre, World Cup winner with France some five years before that, four and a half years before that. It stunned me when he came to the Premier League. I almost put him in my dream team as it was in the time, instantly thinking, oh, he's going to score like 20 goals. He didn't obviously, but he kept them up. And in that same vein, I will suggest Pedro Mendes from Tottenham to Portsmouth in 2006. Scored them two goals against Manchester City at Fratton Park to keep Portsmouth on the right track and it ended in an FA Cup final for Pedro Mendes in his final match for Portsmouth under Harry Redknapp as they moved on to the top half and to European football. On a personal note from Maracas Flute, he suggests Rodney Rowe and Kevin Francis to Hull City in 2001, which, as he states, was the archetypal big man, little man up top and got Hull into the fourth tier playoffs. I'm going have to take his word for that. I'm not big on Hull City in the early part of the century, I'm sorry. Uh, but I'll take your word for it. And Hull, obviously, after that would sort the Premier League inside seven years. And I've got a little best of the rest here. Rory De Lapp to Stoke, obviously terrorised Arsenal and many others on his day with us, swirling long throws in the early days of Stoke in the Premier League at the start of the 2010s. Also, Mascherana to Liverpool, probably one of the most underrated Premier League players of all time in the same vein as Thomas Suchek. Brought on loan originally from West Ham. The Argentine had only played like five or so games for West Ham before realising that he wanted to move and spent a few years at Liverpool before, obviously, winning it all at Barcelona, as is often the case. Clint Dempsey to Fulham, I've got purely for that night against Juventus in the Europa League. Fantastic player, obviously. Would move on to Tottenham, but, in his time at Fulham, probably one of the best of the rest outside the top four, big six, whichever we want to call it. I've got a sneaky one now, Wilfred Zaha to Crystal Palace, which was his buyback from Manchester United and obviously got Palace promoted. And then he's obviously now one of their, he's their best player and their main man. The load's come off him with Eber doing what he does. He's got a fantastic goal at the weekend, but Zaha has been the main man at Palace for almost a decade now. Deli Alley to Spurs, bargain from MK dons, no matter how he's performing now. Um, he was the best attacking midfielder in England for quite a while, actually. Scoring the amount of goals that Gerard and Lampard were in their prime at a young age. And if he can rekindle that form, maybe he needs a move. Maybe he needs a new manager. But uh, he's only in his early 20s, so I mean, let's not write him off yet. And my final one, Gary Cahill to Chelsea never the main man in the Chelsea defence, but always dependable. One is, I think he's, I read it somewhere that he was the quickest person to ever, to win all major trophies. So he won the Premier League in 2015, he won the Europa League in 2013, won the League Cup in 2015 and won the Champions League in 2012 and would have won an FA Cup along there somewhere because it's Chelsea in the 2010s. But Gary Cahill... great at Crystal Palace at the minute, but he's my final suggestion. Thank you for all your suggestions. I think we've roundly covered that right there. After this short break, we'll be talking about a birthday boy, and it is one of the best England managers ever. Welcome back. And we're celebrating a birthday here today, and it has been... 78 years since Terry Venables was born. He was born in wartime Dagenham and would turn out for Chelsea, playing over 600 times for the club in the 1960s in an era that was between the league champions of 1955 and the more cup successes of the late 1960s and 70s. Venables would move to Spurs at the tail end of the 60s before ending his career in England with Queen's Park Rangers and Crystal Palace, remaining in London for the majority of his career. We tend not to think of him as a player, but as a manager first, but he did rack up 619 matches in England. He won a league cup with Chelsea, won an FA cup with Spurs and did gain two England caps, both of which in 1964 against Belgium and the Netherlands and was actually on the standby list for Alf Ramsey's 1966 World Cup squad, uh, a list that, that comprised of 33 players, but ultimately Venables wouldn't make the 22. So after his career finished, he then went on to coach the team of the eighties, Crystal Palace, and if you haven't watched BT's, BT Sports' excellent film, pause this, watch it, and come back to me. And if you come back watching that, so, Venables coached under the exuberant Malcolm Allison, who led Crystal Palace to the FA Cup semi-final. They would, of course, lose to eventual champion Southampton, who beat Manchester United in the final at Wembley. Venables succeeded Allison after the season after in the 76-77 season and dredged them out of the third division at the third first time of asking. This was thanks in part to Jeff Bourne's £30,000 signing from derby County. You scored nine goals in, I think, 16, 17 games. And Palace would leapfrog, suddenly bitter rivals Brighton on the final day to become champions. Brighton would follow Palace into the top flight, continuing the, what's called the M23 derby, which Palace and Brighton fans, I don't think they see it as a derby. It's more of a rivalry born out of their uh, competitiveness in the 70s and 80s. So Venables... Venables fourth season at Sellers Park wouldn't be completed as he would be resigning for QPR who resided in the second division in October. So whilst Palace shuttled down the leagues, Venables QPR came up. Venables dragged them to the 1982 cup final as a second tier outfit but they lost and his success with QPR which ended in a fifth place and a qualification for the UEFA Cup earned him a place on the continent and that is where El Tel was born. Barcelona came calling, recommended ...by Bobby Robson, the current England manager... ...recommending a future England manager. El got Barcelona their first La Liga title in 11 years... ...and then the Euro- European Cup final of 1986 came. Obviously, they wouldn't win that tie... ...losing on penalties to Stour Bucharest in '86. Venables would then bring Gary Lineker... ...the World Cup Golden Boot winner... ...and Everton forward to the club alongside Mark Hughes... ...to varying degrees of success... But after failing to retain the title and being eliminated by Dundee United in the UEFA Cup, Venables was sacked in September 1987 and he would return home and brought Gary Lineker with him to Tottenham Hotspur. He also signed Paul Gascoigne for Newcastle and Spurs would be a mid-table outfit shackled by financial restraints at White Hart Lane. But they would win a memorable 1991 FA Cup final against Brian Clough's Nottingham Forest, the hallmark of his time. At the club, and it ended in bitter circumstances after a spat there. But then came the England job, which, of course, had its own difficulties. Venables was a favourite after Sir Bobby Robson left in 1990, but the job was given to Graham Taylor. Venables would succeed Taylor after his failure to qualify for the 1994 World Cup ahead of England's home tournament in Euro 96, and Venables defended the squad to a death after their antics pre-tournament in Hong Kong, obviously the famous dentist chair, the dentist chair which would be then revoked and then used by Gazza, who got the ball rolling against Scotland, scoring in a 2-0 win after Switzerland's 1-1 draw. Venables wasn't um, afraid of making tough decisions. He took the captaincy from David Platt, who would appear at the tournament, and gave it to Tony Adams, and in a 3-5-2, and England were officially at the races. Showingham and Shearer clicked in probably... The greatest English display since 1966, a 4 1 win against the Dutch, and then fantastically won a penalty shootout against Spain. Stuart Pearce avenging memories of 1990 with a spot kick there. Um, but a miss of Gaza's miss in extra time and Southgate's miss from the penalty spot in extra time against Germany in the semi final meant that Germany would win, win the tournament, and Venables resigned. Venables would become the Australia manager. He returned to Palace for a time solidifying them in the first division. He would then go on to Middlesbrough, where he kept them up, and Leeds United, where he was sacked in March of 2003. Leeds, of course, would then spiral down their divisions. Venables' managerial career would end there. Register TV is back. He's got a pithy four-word statement on Terry Venables. Underrated manager, overrated singer. And I say to you, overrated singer, how can he be overrated? when he got to the finals of Clacton-on-Sea's butlin' singing competition when he was 17. However, Chelsea's team at the time wouldn't allow him to compete in the final stages, which is just mind-blowing. He has had uh, a song in the UK Top 40, though, which was a cover of Elvis's If I Can Dream, which reached number 23 in 2010, which I think must have been a World Cup song. It sounds exactly like a World Cup song. um, His his other song that... um, reached 46 in 2002 in the UK top 40 so didn't chat it was called England crazy and obviously less successful and I've never heard of any of these but a quick Wikipedia search yeah brightened my morning this morning so anyway after the break we'll be talking the Bundesliga and January 2002 as the table never lies So, we're back and we're going to look at the table from the Bundesliga, which wouldn't have come back by this point in January 2002. So, we're looking at the winter table here. So, I sent feelers out on Twitter, of course, and Register TV came back with it was a great season. The top three were separated by two points, and you had Michael Ballack getting 17 goals and an un- unknown Miroslav Klose at Kaiserslautern. So, let's start with Kaiserslautern, shall we? Klose also was joined by Mario Basler in the team, former Bayern Munich player there who scored in the 1999 Champions League final. And Kaiserslautern were four years removed from their second Bundesliga triumph in 1998. They would get to the Champions League quarterfinals the following season, only to be beaten by Bayern Munich. And I think probably the the first all-German tie in the Champions League or European Cup. Kaiserslautern would fall away from their place that you see there on the screen. At 4th at the winter break to 7th, which would gain them into Toto Cup status, that famous cup there. Close to 16 goals meant he would be the club's top scorer and he was obviously burst onto the scene, to use a a Micah Richards phrase, and entered the world stage at the 2002 World Cup. Obviously, I think Germany's first game there, 8-0 against Saudi Arabia, Klose got a hat-trick. I think he was the only player to score. He was the closest player to Ronaldo in terms of goal scoring there. So I think he scored four goals at the tournament. Obviously, four years on, Klose would score five goals. He won the golden boot and now he's the goaliest footballer in World Cup history scoring the first goal against Brazil in that 2014 semi-final that finished 7-1. He helped Germany reach that World Cup final in 2002, as he did in 2014, as did his other teammate, Michael Ballack, the other man mentioned there by Register TV. This, of course, for Michael Ballack and Bayer Leverkusen, as we've discussed previously on the show, was a season of their famous anti-treble. Leverkusen surrendered their place at the top for second place, the top place in as winter champions there, and the nightmare continued. Two years prior, they had wrapped the league up. It looked as though they'd wrapped the league up. They only needed a draw at Unterhaken but lost 2-0. They played attacking all season, but then played for the draw, lost 2-0, and then Bayern Munich stole the title. Here, though, they would lose it similarly late on, but not on the final day. They would lose successive games to Werder Bremen and Nürnberg, so, which allowed Borussia Dortmund to sneak in and take top spot going into the final day, and an elephant winner on 74 minutes at home to Werder Bremen clinch the title, so it was still quite nail-biting, 14 minutes of the Bundesliga season to go. And famously, seven days later, Leverkusen were thumped 4-2 by Schalke in the DFB Pokal final, and four days after that, famously beaten by Zinedine Zidane's volley and Real Madrid in the Champions League final in a fortnight that could have been... Three trophies ended with zero, which is why they're called Bayern Neverkusen. But let's backtrack. Let's backtrack to Schalke. And like Leverkusen, they had never won the Bundesliga since the uh, professionalisation in 1963. But like Leverkusen, they had become achingly close to the Bundesliga title recently. On the final day of the 2000-2001 season, Schalke had ended the season with a 4-3 win at that club again, under Hakim. They needed favours from Hamburg win, so they weren't in the driver's seat going into the final game. But Hamburg were 1-0 up at home to Bayern. They were complying to Schalke's demands of winning the Bundesliga title finally. However, the Hamburg goalkeeper picks up a back pass and in the final minute of the Bundesliga season, this is like Sergio Aguero stuff in 2012, Bayern Munich had a free kick in the penalty area. Oliver Kahn wanted to take the free kick (laughs) <laughs> to, to seal the glory for Bayern Munich but it, the onus fell on to defender Patrick Anderson who drilled the ball in a draw was secured at the death and Bayern Munich won a title as they often did and unlike Leverkusen would go on to win the Champions League a few days later but going back to 2001-2 Bayern still had a faint hope of winning the Bundesliga title on the final day the top three were separated by two points as previously stated and Bayern Munich needed favours off two teams as Bayern Munich Needed a win at home to Hansa Rostock, which they did 3-2, and needed losses for Borussia Dortmund and Bayer Leverkusen, which didn't come, and they would have to settle for third place and the Champions League. In this season, we bid goodbye to Freiburg, FC Köln and St. Pauli. St. Pauli returned for a season in 2010 only to go straight back down, whilst Freiburg and Köln bounced back immediately and similarly yo-yoed for a bit Köln the 1964 and 1978 champions. And as we speak now, both are in the Bundesliga. Freiburg overachieving in 9th, and Köln perhaps about the level they should be in 15th, a place and a point above Armenia Beilerfeld in the relegation playoff. St. Pauli, on the other hand, are in the relegation zone, but in the second tier. We'll be discussing French football in next week's Table Never Lies, but we'll wrap up today's episode with another trivial teaser. We're back and it's time to wrap up today's show, episode 13, with two thousand Trivial Teasers. So if you've not listened before, I give you the following clues. The position, two managers, five teammates, and from that, you'll get the right answer, hopefully. I can't remember if we had any correct answers last time because it's been two or three weeks since the last episode. Scott Shaw, shout out to Scott Shaw, he usually gets the right answer on uh, Twitter there. And our last teaser on episode 22 was a right back He was managed by Steve McLaren and Kevin Keegan. He played alongside Paul Gascoigne, Stan Collymore, Stuart Downing, Aaron Lennon, Dennis Wise, and they all turned out to be England teammates and England managers. It was Gary Neville. Famous now, of course, for popping champagne whenever Liverpool drop points on Manchester United win on Twitter, among other things like his punditry and his fabled footballing career. So today we've got for you a striker. He's been managed by Ian Dowie and Neil Warnock. His teammates, or at least five of them, have been Phil Neville, Damien Duff, David Dunn, Brad Friedel, and Dennis Romadal. Again, he's been managed by Ian Dowie, Neil Warnock, played alongside Phil Neville, Damien Duff, David Dunn, Brad Friedel, and Dennis Romadal. He was a centre forward. So we'll find out the answer to that next week. And if you think you know the answer, let me know in the comments down below and tweet us at YouTube, where we will be residing. For the next week or so, where we discuss football all the time, inane stats, the prediction king, my son, will give us some useful tips for the uh, the Premier League games, which he got wrong on Monday night with Liverpool's win. But there we go. Next week, we'll be looking at Bobby Robson's time as Newcastle manager. We'll be looking at Emmanuel Adebayor at Newcastle and the Table Never Lies will be in France in January 2002. Elsewhere on the channel... We'll be looking at the 1989 FA Cup final, Germany, Calcio Polly, Kenny Dalglish, Oldham, Everton, Manchester City and the 50 best footballing rivalries in world football. Check them out all the way up until next week where we'll be back with episode 24 of the Not Hits Nostalgia podcast. I'm at ifwhatif underscore YouTube. Always mess that up. We're 35 minutes in. I'll see you later. Have a good week.